being diagnosed and kind of having the problem acknowledged by a professional, it was a very, quite a scary experience, I suppose, to kind of have somebody tell you something as big as that. But at the same time, it was quite validating to know that like all these things that I'd been feeling and experiencing, they weren't just me kind of being lazy or overreacting or just being incapable. It was very much like an actual problem that a lot of people deal with. Have you ever really stopped to wonder what makes you, you? Why you think the way you do and feel the things you feel? This is Your Amazing Mind, and this podcast is here to help you understand why your mind is so amazing. I'm Michael Pearson, Deputy Head of Student Counselling at the University of Bristol. And what we're doing in this podcast is opening up conversations about the biggest mental health issues affecting students, young people, and everyone. In each episode, you'll hear a student's frank and thoughtful experience of a particular mental health issue. And then we'll get together with a special guest to help you realize that there are people out there that might just get what you're going through and to give you some advice to help you feel just that little bit better. In this episode, we're talking about depression, the foreboding and persistent cloud that can make every facet of life more difficult. It is often misunderstood and affects over 80,000 young people in the UK. Coming up, we'll be speaking with Dr. Dominique Thompson. She's a GP who has won awards for her work in young people's mental health and the author of student wellbeing series on anxiety, depression and more. But now you're about to hear from Ellie's amazing mind and the difficult and emotive story of how she experienced depression. I've struggled with mental health problems since I was about 14, but they were never directly linked to depression. So for example, like in when I was about 15, 16, I had a lot of issues with like disordered eating and things like that, but it was never directly linked to depression um I think for as long as I can remember like I've been surrounded by people who've been struggling with mental health problems so it's never really stood out to me as a massive problem so I think it took me a while to kind of acknowledge that you know not everybody feels low as much as I was feeling low So I've always been quite academically inclined and I've always been quite a high achiever. So, you know, all of those things, I think, kind of distracted me from the idea that I was struggling in any way because, you know, I was being praised for doing well in school and, you know, I had quite a nice group of friends. Um, So I'd say it was only like towards the end of sixth form where I started to realise that maybe I was struggling with um, depression or something related to depression I remember just I, I've always been quite steady with my like work and things like that but it got to a point where I felt so burnt out and I just had no motivation or ability to focus in lessons and just like things that used to interest me just started to like I just couldn't find any will in me to to do them and um, like I remember there were points where I was in lessons and I just couldn't be there anymore because I, w- I just felt so overwhelmed with this like feeling of like 
feeling so low and like drained of energy that I literally had to like leave the lesson and go home. So I'd say like year 13 was when things started to get quite evidently bad, but I only addressed them clinically midway through first year of university because like the adjustment to uni, I found things got quite hard. When I came to uni, I think I had quite high expectations about, you know, the social life was going to be amazing. I was going to be surrounded by people who were the same as academically inclined as me. And I thought I was going to like find a place where I felt really at home. But um, I think it like kind of didn't reach my expectations. And like the flat I was in, I didn't really bond with them as much as I'd hoped to. I found things quite overwhelming and lonely. And I suppose just living by myself and just suddenly having to do everything for myself and having no accountability, like my parents weren't there to tell me to to eat or to, you know, get up or to do things. So um, when I was feeling low, it was quite hard to, you know, motivate myself to do the basic things. Like, obviously, I was out in Stoke Bishop, so if I wanted to go into uni, I had to, you know, get, get up, get the bus, go back. And it just felt like every day felt like such a task. So I think it got to the point where I was skipping a lot of seminars and things like that. And um, just, I was in my room a lot of the time, um, sleeping a lot of the time. And then there were even like evenings where I found I was coping with feeling lonely by just like, you know, drinking wine alone in my room. And it just felt like things were piling up and getting worse and worse. And it was getting harder and harder to fix them. I like neglected getting help for so long, but it got to a point in first year where I was like, okay, well, this is really affecting my quality of life and, you know, my ability to get the education that I've been wanting to get for so long. So um, I think I went down to my residential village, like support system or something. I don't know exactly what it's called. And they helped me book a same day appointment and I went down to the health service when it was still open, obviously. And I told them how I was feeling. And they ended up prescribing me antidepressants. The medication that I was put on, um, sertraline, I'd say it helped me. It kind of just stabilised my mood quite a bit and gave me a bit more energy to do things during the day. It gave me a bit of a lighter outlook on life and just things felt a bit like not as heavy. I'd say things in the in the short term um, did feel like they were improving. Like, obviously, the problem didn't just go away because uh, medication is not like a cure-all, but it definitely did help ease some of the symptoms of the depression and help me in those day-to-day things that I was struggling with, yeah. Being diagnosed and kind of having the problem acknowledged by a professional, it was a very quite a scary experience I suppose to kind of have somebody tell you something as big as that but at the same time it was quite validating to know that like all these things that I'd been feeling and experiencing they weren't just me kind of being lazy or overreacting or just being incapable it was very much like an actual problem that a lot of people deal with so as much as it was very difficult for me to get myself to that point I'm very glad that I did because it kind of made me feel a lot less alone and a lot like I wasn't like just a problem that I couldn't fix. Like there were ways that I could help myself if I you know, took the steps to do so. A year on, I suppose, from getting 
diagnosed and getting the medication, things aren't perfect. Like, I definitely would still say that I struggle with depression, but having that diagnosis and um, having had a year to reflect on it and to process it and to kind of adjust to the medication and things like that, I think I have more willpower to um, get through the bad days um, and kind of just knowing that I've like got through every bad day before kind of helps me when I'm feeling low. So there are definitely still a lot of days where I find it hard to get out of bed, but I just remind myself that I've succeeded in doing that every day so far in my life. As much as it is difficult sometimes, I do find that there are a lot more things in my life that motivate me to kind of keep going. I, I actually find it quite helpful to um to kind of see, speak about these things. Like I, I've written an article for Epigram about this sort of thing. And I just find it quite um, helpful to kind of put stuff out there. And I feel like it takes the power away from it. Yeah, it makes it feel like it's it's not as much of a burden on me if I have to tell other people about it. Joining me and Ellie, Dr. Dominique Thompson is an award-winning GP, young people's mental health expert, TEDx speaker, author, educator, and was director of the University of Bristol's Student Health Service. She was named Bristol Healthcare Professional of the Year 2017, and in 2019, she was nominated as one of the top 100 West Women of the Year. Her compassion and care towards young people's mental health is unmatched. The knowledgeable, warm and talented Dr. Dominique Thompson. Essentially, I'm a GP. I was a GP for a very long time and mainly a GP for, for students, which I love doing. So I basically spent my whole time thinking about ways that we could uh, improve as a practice the care that we provided for students at the University of Bristol. But then about three and a half years ago, I was seeing so many young people with mental health problems that I thought maybe I wanted to try approaching it slightly differently. And that's when I took a sideways step. So I started writing books and giving talks and I set up my consultancy. So I don't actually see patients um, anymore at the moment you sort of feel like, you know, you're seeing somebody every 10 minutes, uh, you know, a new person every 10 minutes as a GP, which is great on the one hand, because you can help individuals with their lives as much as you can, of course. But there was also a feeling that there were so many young people struggling with quite similar themes, actually, that I thought, perhaps there's another way to kind of get the messages back out to them. And it sounds obvious, I suppose, um, when I say it, but I just felt, you know, I'm saying similar things over and over again. Maybe if I wrote them in books, that would be one way. Maybe if we put them into animations, maybe if we put them into videos, if we, you know, there was just about trying to get the messages out there in lots of different ways. Mm. And, and talking about different messages, you were involved in the Ardman animations, weren't you? Um, I, I watched one today in particular, the one about loneliness and isolation, which I absolutely loved. Could you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, so essentially, uh, a couple of years ago, I was approached by Ardman Animation, who, you know, made Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep. And um, I thought, well, if nothing else, I mean, I didn't know what was going to come of it. I'll have just a really fun meeting because at this point, it was just getting into their building that was exciting because <laughs> normally it's not open to the public. And, you know, you go in and everything is Ardman themed. So you're sitting in a room and there are literally Oscars in the cabinet on the wall. And you're like, wow. So anyway, I was just really excited. This was my most exciting meeting ever in my career. <laughs> and then they said, well, we want to, um, you know, develop uh, something around, you know, young people's well-being, mental health. We don't really know, you know, what it might be. So they thought I might be able to help them. And I came up with the five themes that that you see in the um, website and the animations. And the website's called What's Up With Everyone. The whole project is called What's Up With Everyone. And basically, they've created five short 50-second animations for each of the five themes. And then there's sort of information on the website if you want to find out more about it, look at resources and so on. But the themes are the ones that I found were most commonly um, leading to some of the mental health and well-being issues that I was seeing. So they were to do with competitiveness of um, everyday life and society, perfectionism, social media, isolation, loneliness together as one. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic and really relatable, easy to understand. So it's whatsupwitheveryone.com in case anyone wants to check those out. They're, they're fantastic. You've also authored the Student Wellbeing series, um, fantastic books. I've got the one on anxiety and really helpful, very simple to follow. You talk in your book about depression, about lots of misconceptions about depression. And I, I wondered if you could give some examples of those misconceptions or explain a bit more about that. Yes, I mean, I think the problem with a lot of discussions around mental health is that there are quite a lot of you know, myths um, that people perhaps still believe or sort of don't really understand, you know, maybe that's just what they've been told when they were growing up. And, um, and, and there'll be things like, you can only be depressed if you've got a reason for it. So, you know, people sort of feel like, well, nothing's happened to me, so I shouldn't be depressed, you know, and people say to them, well, I don't understand why you're depressed, as, <laughs> as you would say, look, I'm sorry, but why do you have diabetes? It's just ridiculous, you don't have a reason. And, and, and yet that sort of in mental health really pervades the sort of the background. So I look at some of those, those myths, um, and I try to sort of break them down and explain, you know, maybe where they've come from, but why they might not be true. And, and they're all about how you might get better or where you, you know, how you can get help. But I just try and address some of the specific issues that come up. I do the same actually when I talk about medication. There are a lot of uh, of these myths around medication. So, you know, my approach when whenever I deal with some of the issues that I'm, I'm brought, whether it's about the mental health directly, it's about the therapy, it's about other people's views, is always to try and look underneath what's underneath what's the worrying you know reason behind someone's concern or that myth or that stigma and to break it down i think myth busting with depression is incredibly important and ellie i'd like to bring you into the conversation here i saw you nodding a lot when uh don was talking then about myths and depression and i wondered if that's something you've had experience of or something you're aware of yeah, um, I definitely like resonate with the whole idea about, 
you know, people saying you don't have a reason to be depressed, so why are you depressed? Like, even, like, with my family, like, when I've I've tried to be more open with them about it, and they're always like, well, you've had a great upbringing, you have, you know, you've got great friends, you have a great, like, family, so why are you depressed? You haven't got a reason for it. And it's it's very invalidating, because it's like, I definitely feel these feelings, and they definitely impact my life on a daily basis, but when you constantly have people telling you, well, you shouldn't be depressed, like, you're being ungrateful, you're being, you know, all the all things like that, it's very much like, it leads you to question whether you actually are depressed or whether you're just making things up or just, you know, overreacting or something like that. I often talk about or hear about this transition from low mood to depression. And I think it's also quite difficult for individuals to understand when they're crossing that threshold from low mood to depression. What's qualitatively different about depression and how might people spot this? Sure. I mean, I think when I was trying to explain it to the young person sitting in front of me, I was trying to... um, you know, because of course, they're telling me how they're feeling, which was great. And then I would want to sort of do an assessment around that to see, you know, how difficult things were, how far we'd gone along that path, if you like. So understanding when you're having feelings, say, let's, let's say that you are feeling very down, very sad, because of course, depression isn't just that you might feel very angry or irritable all the time, or you might feel nothing and flat and numb. But let's go with the sadness and, and low one. So say they were feeling like that. It would be about seeing whether they were feeling that pretty much all of the time, all of the days for, say, a period sustained over two to four weeks or longer. So I would talk about the fact that it was pervasive and persistent in their life, not something that you know you, you felt for a day or two but actually felt better afterwards and then really quite well, quite fine for, you know, two or three weeks, and then you might have another couple of days, you know, it was about how much of their life it was interfering with, and whether it was stopping them doing the things they should and wanted to be doing. And that was really the way that I would help them to sort of understand it had crossed over from, you know, having a bad day, a few bad days, a bad week, and so on, into something that we might call depression. Uh, and depression also comes in all shapes and sizes as well, uh, although I'd say there are lots of common themes and threads. Um, I think it's important to recognise that there might be cultural differences to depression, um, identity differences. I want to ask you about students and depression. Um, through Ellie's personal story we heard some particular challenges that she was experiencing coming to university and from your perspective Dom working with a lot of students and young people was there anything that really stood out that may be a common attribute in terms of depression or cause of depression for students coming to university? Well, I mean, as you know, Michael, that most, well, a lot of us think of depression in terms of there's a biological element, there's the psychological element, and then there's a social element. Um, And so I guess the transition to university, the change in their life is probably a lot of impact in the social side of triggering depression, perhaps. So I can't comment on, you know, individuals, you know, background, genetics, family histories and things like that. But certainly coming to university, 
you perhaps leave quite a big support network behind. So that's the first thing, you are dislocated. So then you come and you hope that you'll meet lots of new people and, and you know build your support network again, but it doesn't always work well for people. It doesn't always work smoothly. Things can happen that are nobody's fault. That's just the way it falls. You might be in a in a shared flat or shared living space with people you just don't click with or actively dislike. You know, that so there are there are lots of things that are to do with that dislocation and then potentially feeling homesick and it can tip over into isolation. So that's really important. But there might be other things, sort of a, a more like a culture shock, you know, um, that things are very different. People may um, have very different experiences of life. They have maybe either more money, less money. You might have more or less money. So there's all the financial impacts and financial stress that suddenly you've got that responsibility. And then there are lots of things to do with expectation. So you're carrying the weight sometimes, not just your own expectation and hopes and dreams, but that of your family and sometimes that of your whole community. You know, there can be a real pressure there. So you know, when you look at the different transitions and shifts and cultural changes, there are lots of reasons why somebody could start to feel really quite doubting of themselves, really lacking in confidence, really sort of start to be down on themselves. And then that can obviously, if, you know, it carries on, could potentially lead to a depression. And a lot of what you've just talked about, I think, comes under transition and change. Ellie, this is something you talked about. Does some of this stuff resonate with you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, what Dom said about like the the move to university, and I think I came with so many expectations about how great it was going to be. Um, so I, I got there and I was feeling really hopeful about everything, I, I suppose. Then like the flat that I was living in, like I didn't really click with the people I was living with. So immediately, like from freshers week I like the adjustment wasn't what I was expecting it was very isolating because obviously as you said that support network isn't there and you haven't got people who have pre-existing knowledge of who you are as a person so it's very easy to like just fall back into this state of isolation because you don't know the people you're living with or the people you're studying with like very quickly it's very easy to feel very low and like isolated from people Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with us. I really appreciate it. So I'd like to start to talk a little bit about what people could do. So we've got people listening to this that might be experiencing depression or persistent low mood that might be becoming a depression that are struggling. Don, what would you like to say to these people? I mean, my first reassurance really is that um, there is so much help out there. And the problem with when you feel very depressed is that you can often feel that you are very alone, that you're kind of not worth, you know, making the effort for yourself. You don't feel like bothering people. You know, you feel a bit helpless and hopeless about everything. And those feelings that it's all a bit pointless and it's just too much, you haven't got the motivation, can stop you sometimes being able to access the help that's out there. So I suppose the more I can say to make it really clear that, you know, help is out there and hopefully, um, in my view, perhaps it isn't too exhausting and difficult to reach. And we'll obviously give some of those um 
you know, resources in, in a second might help a few people to just make that move to find out a bit more and talk to someone. Because the very first thing that I always think people should try and do is talk to someone they trust. And that that doesn't have to be, you know, a GP or a counsellor immediately. It may just be a friend that they trust, um, a family member. It could be your best mate's mum or somebody like that, you know, just someone that you trust just to connect with another human so that you remind yourself at quite a deep level that you're not on your own. And then, of course, there are lots of other behaviours and activities, and we can talk about those in a minute, as well as other resources. I definitely say in terms of reaching out and getting support, it's very hard to kind of um, like take that first step and validate yourself, because I think it's very easy to feel like you're not bad enough or you're not sad enough to reach out and get support. Um it's definitely the way that depression is like depicted in media and stuff. It's very much like if you're not actively suicidal, if you're not, if you're not, you know, harming yourself regularly, then you're not sad enough to be able to get support. So I think for me, the reason it took so long for me to go to my GP and ask for help was was because I wasn't, you know, to the extreme of what people assume the depression is like. So I definitely say it's just about acknowledging that, you know, you're everything that you're feeling is a valid feeling and you're not any less deserving of support because you might not be as bad as someone else but it's always worth just reaching out and finding out if you do like qualify for that sort of support. Are there any last words you'd like to say to people listening in terms of how they can support themselves? There are things like you know being more active or getting outside into nature um trying to sometimes just see the beauty in quite natural things like going for a walk and looking up at the trees, looking at the blossom at the moment. Those sorts of things can really connect with us at quite a deep level. We won't instantly feel loads better, but it just reminds us that there is a world out there and we are part of it. Um, And the other thing is, it's a sort of a little sort of um, win-win trick. But if we do something nice for others, we actually get a little puff of a happy hormone and so it makes us feel better but it also makes them feel nice which is great so often even when we're feeling very down and possibly anxious we can do still nice things for others and that will be a win-win basically it'll make us feel good it make them feel good and and that can just be a helpful little thing to do whilst we're sort of talking to people getting the help we need exploring talking therapies and so on. I definitely just like to agree with Dom in that when you're depressed it's very easy to like underestimate the power of small things but I think um just going outside for a walk or even just going out and standing in your garden or you know just having a nice meal or even a glass of water like the tiny things like that when you're depressed it's so easy to feel like they won't help you when you're feeling very low but like I've always found that when I finally muster up the motivation to do those things it always does make me feel better so it's just worth keeping in mind that when you're feeling very depressed, you might think, oh, that's not going to help me because I'm, you know, past the point of, like, repair. But if you do just take a small step and do even one of those small things that you were putting off, I would say that it does help. If you're affected by the issues raised in this podcast, check out the episode notes for links to relevant support. Some of the best ways to combat mental health issues is through conversation. So don't be afraid to talk to someone you trust. And if you know anyone that might be struggling with these issues, please share this podcast with them. 
This has been an 1860 production for the University of Bristol. The producer was Rowan Bishop.